previously on Murder, Etc. You turn the page and you read narcotics officer shot in head. That one caught me. And you, all you have to do is read about three or four paragraphs into that before you said this is a story. You know, when I got the call, I almost dropped the phone. We were all just devastated. Naturally, you would be. My brother died right away, and Frank lived a, just a short day or two, and he passed on. Within 24 hours of Luke was being murdered, word on the street is it's Wacky Wakefield. There wasn't a lot of evidence, uh, in my opinion, that, uh, to convict Charles. And the people thought that, that he was railroaded. People want to forget about this case. The investigators want people to forget about this case because there's a big loose end, and that loose end is the fact that Charles Wakefield's still alive. I just said they brought Wakefield in from CCI over here, and he just looked at me and said, hey, that didn't kill that cop, I did. To make light of the politics of the day and the blue lives matter versus black lives matter, here's an instance in 1975 where neither one of them mattered, and that's the tragedy in it doesn't matter who you voted for, but it's, it's something that I think the town's going to have to look on. Stop and think for a minute about the gifts that you've given over the course of your life. The ugly ties, the boxes of chocolate, the bedroom slippers. And try to imagine the last gift you'll ever give and who will take it from your hand and how long they'll remember it. I said, what's that in your hand? And he said, oh, I took down the aquarium in my office. He said, it's a pump for my uh, fish tank. I took it down. You want it? And he gave it to me. Imagine Frank Looper, the sunrise in his bloodshot eyes, his mind in a million places, like where he'd been all night, like the bullet holes in his house, like the secrets he was keeping from everyone. Imagine him carrying around a used aquarium pump, like the patron saint of random objects. And in his last hours on Earth, finding a friendly face with an interest in aquarium pumps. My name is Danette Green. I went to work at the sheriff's office October the 12th, 1971, two weeks after my 18th birthday. Danette Green may be the only one on Earth who can say she both worked for every Greenville County Sheriff for 40 years and was one of the last people to ever speak to Lieutenant Frank Looper. And I was just a kid out of high school when I first went. Knew nothing of politics or people or what was going on. I was just there and learning. By the morning of January 31st, 1975, Danette was four years into her work on her second sheriff, and she had an aquarium at home. She was just starting her morning shift in the sheriff's office dispatch room. It was my day to handle the phones and calls that morning, and then you'd switch off and be on the radio later. Well, that morning, Right after I took shift, here comes Frank to the window. Lieutenant Frank Looper, the head of the narcotics squad, a good-looking, crime-fighting, very tired man. He stood in front of a woman he'd seen more times than he could count. He'd heard her voice more times than that. On nights he was out on the roads hunting drug dealers like he'd hunted rabbits when he was a kid. When he needed help, when he needed anything, he'd key the button on his radio. And often, the voice on the other end of that crackling line was Danette. There was a lot of faceless people out there on that radio that I communicated with, and you got to know whether you ever really saw them or not. In four decades working in law enforcement, Danette heard a lot of dirt. The kind deputies tracked in from Greenville's gritty streets, and the kind that some lawmen rolled around in. She heard it about a lot of deputies, but not Frank Looper. He was well thought of. 
upstanding, honest. I never heard anything dishonest or anything that he'd ever done bad. You had heard about some, some of the other officers at times. You didn't know what to sort out and what not to. And like I said, I was very young. You know, I didn't know what to believe, what not to believe, and a lot of it I just didn't think about. I look back now and I said, you know, I was right in the middle of it all and didn't realize it. On January 31st, 1975, Looper stood just on the other side of a pane of glass and passed Annette the last gift he'd ever give. And we had a window, something like you would in a bank with a little hole in the middle where you talked and a little slot where they could put stuff through. The door was supposed to kept closed. Frank came to the window and said, Danette, I'm going home, been working on something all night, I'm tired, I'm gonna be at mom and dad's and if y'all need me, call me, I'll be home getting a few hours sleep. Looper did not say what he had been working on all night. Danette never knew. Looper told confidants it was something really big. But when a few hours later, we got the call, and it was a shock. Danette's shock became Greenville County's mystery. Two dead men, a drug cop and his father, shot just behind their left ears just after lunch. Within 13 months, the county's top prosecutor would declare it a mystery solved. Frank had worked all late, late, late that night. Prosecutor Billy Wilkins eventually Judge Billy Wilkins. I think what happened is that uh, Wakefield went in and said a young man named Charles Wakefield Jr. robbed the Loopers and killed them both. Wakefield then leaves. He lives about, as a crow flies, about two miles from the Loopers. And of course, Mrs. Looper, when Frank doesn't return, she goes out and sees what's happened and calls the EMS. And of course, the sirens were deafening, they say. Oh, well, they could hear him for miles because the police and ambulance is coming in. This was the story Wilkins told at trial. And outside the courthouse, no one with a voice in the 1970s stood up and challenged that story. And so that became the story of how Frank Looper died. Danette Green's story starts differently, with a fish tank pump, and continues in a way Wilkins and the investigators who sent Charles Wakefield to death row have been denying for years. He was shot execution style. You know, that was one of the first thoughts on everybody's mind. This is the execution-style hit. And Greenville was known to be a little wild and woollier back then than it is now. Wild and woollier is a polite way to say a county policed by more corrupt cops than it knew. A county home and hideout to an organized crime ring known by a lot of names, including the Dixie Mafia. A county where today, 44 years later, the official Looper murder story remains in question. And the first thing in your mind, in everybody's mind, was it's a hit. You know, he's a narcotics officer. It's a hit. For the past 40 years, people have told several versions of the Looper murder story. People tell the official story. Somebody killed the Loopers during a robbery. Some people tell a story of fear. The Loopers were victim of a hitman. Other people tell the story of injustice. An innocent man went to death row. What I'm going to tell you is a story the jury who convicted Charles Wakefield Jr. never heard. I'm going to tell you the story some people argue the jury should have heard. A story that shares a few details with the official story, and then walks that wild and woollier road, paved with details about the murder, lined with Frank Looper's enemies, clouded over by corrupt cops in a murder investigation built on the words and reputations of criminals, and ending with information that's remained largely secret for four decades. And the only way to tell that story in a fair way is to start at the beginning. Recall then what Vera saw from her window. 
Vera saw a young black male running from the scene in the direction of Easley down Pendleton Street. That's all she saw. From, from what I can, based on the reports or the printed details of the crime. That's so, Andy Etheridge, the guy who took an interest in this case about the same time I did, almost two decades ago, and spent the time since trying to decode everything he could find in the newspapers. Newspapers that didn't tell the whole story. One that began with Vera Looper, Frank's mother, making lunch for her husband. They ate their meal in the den, in front of the TV. They had their choice of a soap opera, The Young and the Restless, or game shows, Jackpot or Password All-Stars. Recently, Andy and I stood at the end of what was once the Looper driveway, just a step off busy Pendleton Street. Um, I had lunch, and Rufus Looper goes back out to start working on this car in the garage, and she's going back and forth between picking up their dishes and sees a guy standing like right about where we are right now, sort of walking up and down the sidewalk a little bit. And she sees him a couple times. And she turns away, and when she comes back, she sees him walking up the driveway right here. As doctors worked to save her son's life, Vera Looper sat in the emergency room and gave her first statement to police. She described a black man she saw through her kitchen window. The cops wrote it down like this. Six foot, 160 pounds, short bushy hair, wearing a cap, blue jeans, waist-length jacket, believed to be dark brown. And he walks in. She goes and gets Frank Luber, who's on the telephone, and says, a black man just walked into the garage. Go check on your dad. This is prior to gunshots. This is prior to gunshots. Vera Luper said her son was on the phone with his girlfriend, a nurse named Rita. When his mother asked him for help, Luper hung up the phone, grabbed a 357 Magnum revolver, put it in his waistband, and pulled his shirt tail over the gun's grip. Wearing a pair of green bedroom slippers, he walked outside. Frank goes, he gets his service weapon, goes outside, into the garage, and apparently they're in there together for a couple of minutes. Nothing happens. Vera Looper spoke to officers R.L. Hand and Matthew Beecham. In their report, they wrote these words. Quote, a few minutes after Frank yeah, so entered, that's, that's the black like came out of the garage just as if he was leaving. What help it would be. And she sees the guy that she'd seen before walk out in our, you know, toward the direction where we're standing right now, pause, and turn around, and she says, like, casually walk back into the garage. By himself. By himself. Frank Looper and his father in the garage. Yes. He turns around, goes back in. That police report so, continues like this. Quote, just a few feet outside, he turned around and casually re-entered the garage. She hears the two gunshots, and then he runs. This part of Vera's report to police, one she repeated on the stand during the murder trial, is one that gives the Looper's surviving family pause. For years, they'd heard people repeat Wakefield could never have handled a gun well enough to commit those two murders. I always thought because Frank left the house to go to the garage armed, he was already on alert because my Aunt Vera was concerned for Rufus Jr. I always thought that either it was a, a professional contract killer that got the jump on him, that, you know, just the ordinary robber wouldn't have got the jump on Frank. And Frank was great with firearms. Looper's cousin Scott McCauley said when they heard the suspect walked out casually after Frank arrived and then casually walked back in before the gunshots, a different sort of suspicion began to form, one that made more sense to them than the story people have been telling for years. That it was somebody that he know, knew that he was comfortable with, that, that he walked in there and said, 
oh, I know this person. And so he put his guard down. It was somebody that he was comfortable with to enough to where he put his guard down and, and allowed himself to be jumped or, or taken advantage of. And obviously, you know, that was the end result. So The end result, two men shot and one man, or at least one man people saw, running away. And that would be the point that Owens and Mashburn saw him run. And from there, I guess it all just went to hell. But yeah. meanwhile- from there, you're on the lookout for a young black male. Police interviewed Viola Owens and Edna Mashburn, the first eyewitnesses to give statements. And they told police they were sitting on a porch across Pendleton Street when they saw a black man run down the Looper driveway. Both women said the man was wearing blue jeans and a white t-shirt. As I talked about in an earlier episode, in the Looper murder trial, prosecutor Billy Wilkins never called to the stand Owens, Mashburn, or Ed Gray, another person who gave police an eyewitness account on the day of the murders. When I interviewed prosecutor Billy Wilkins, he asked me in advance not to pull a gotcha on him if he misremembered little details about a 40-year-old case, and I assured him that I wouldn't. And sometimes he did misremember, as anyone could after this many years. But when I asked him about the witnesses he never put on the stand, he didn't misremember. He said he simply didn't remember at all. There were a lot of eyewitnesses that day. And the one thing that I never could figure out is why you didn't call those eyewitnesses in the trial at the time. Because, I mean, they, they were on the scene. They saw, you know, the person walk down the driveway. They gave descriptions of them. But uh, you never used them. I don't recall why. I really don't. I mean, I'm just... Um, and I'm not going to try to force you to try to remember if you don't remember. I, I, I just don't, I, I'm, I'm sure I evaluated and decided one way or the other. Um, but I, I, don't, I don't recall why I didn't call. I didn't, I didn't either need them or I didn't think they helped the case. Or. I've heard several stories about people who wanted to testify at the Looper trial and never got the chance. But I never heard any clear explanation about why a jury never heard from the first three eyewitnesses interviewed minutes after the shootings. Eric Gottlieb was an attorney who worked on Charles Wakefield's behalf for a decade, one who compared the initial police sketch and the initial composite photo with a photo taken of Charles Wakefield the day of the shootings, and Gottlieb started to form his own theory. You look at Charles's mugshot from when they brought him in on January 31st, 1975, he's got like a 10-inch afro and a beard. And then you look at the composite sketch, and it looks like Frank Sinatra wearing a, a fedora. Like the guy didn't even look black. And then there's like a photo composite where they kind of selected photographs of different hairstyles and different eyes and different noses and different mouths and kind of assembled them all to create like a amalgam of a, a photograph. That person, although that person looked black, the hair was pretty short, there was no beard, no mustache. And it's just very obvious that this was, there was something inconsistent here, something extremely wrong. All of those initial eyewitnesses are dead. And I've spent years looking for anybody who knew them, who might have had some explanation. And the first I found was a man named Leonard Brown, a security company owner who twice ran for sheriff and was a bit of a rabble-rouser in the 1970s. I was sitting at breakfast with him one Saturday morning talking about something else entirely, and without me asking about the eyewitnesses, he started talking about a woman named Edna who had seen the suspect. He knew her from a nearby convenience store where he had a security contract. In a later interview, I asked Brown about it again. And I was over there right after the Looper trial. They was talking about that Looper trial, and she was talking to the lady who run the store. 
She was telling me that I set up there during that trial, and they never did call me as a witness. That Edna was Edna Mae Mashburn, who lived across Pendleton Street, the one sitting on her porch that day, the one who had apparently sat up at the courthouse wanting to testify at trial. And then I asked her a question, too. Well, why didn't they call you? She said, I don't know. So I sat up there and said, uh, I didn't think that was the same guy that I saw. And I immediately, knowing what they was looking for, I said, well, I, that's why they didn't call you. <laughs> I immediately knew that's why they didn't call her, because they weren't looking for nobody that said it didn't look like them. They didn't want the truth. They wanted to put somebody away. What Leonard Brown remembers and what Billy Wilkins doesn't neither proves Wakefield's guilt or innocence, but they also do nothing to help explain why witnesses who came forward eight months later carried more weight than people interviewed the day Vera Looper saw a man in her driveway. And Vera Looper, the only January 31st eyewitness who actually testified, when asked at trial to identify Charles Wakefield as the man she saw walking into the Looper garage just before she heard gunshots, Vera Looper said under oath she couldn't do that because his hair looked different. Back in the early 1970s, the Greenville County Sheriff's Office was much smaller, more Mayberry RFD than NYPD Blue. Not a loud bullpen of tired city beat cops with a dispatch center three blocks away, but a place where only a door separated the county sheriff, Cash Williams, and the ladies taking the calls in the next room. That door stayed closed normally because it went into his secretary's office, and then he was right beside that. Cash Williams was a first-term sheriff and a first-time politician who had been in office for two years. In 1972, Williams had ousted Bob Martin, a sheriff for 16 years, under whom Bob Skelton had served as a lieutenant. Cash Williams had made Looper his top narcotics deputy. And just after lunch on January 31st, that door that was almost always closed opened. You know, that door I mentioned he come barreling through there when the call came through, and everybody was on alert. That door flew open, and the rest of the day, that door stayed open because he was in and out to see what was going on, what was heard. Because we were sort of in shock after that. You know, everybody was sitting around, solemn faces. What's going on? Not knowing if Frank was going to live or die, knowing one was already dead. Was it a hit or not? Is it a hit or not? That was the biggest thing. Was it a hit? The concept wasn't cooked up by a New York lawyer in a bid to get Charles Wakefield out of prison. It wasn't created by a conspiracy theory website as clickbait. And it's not something a guy molded together to fit the narrative of a true crime podcast. According to Danette Green and others, it wasn't a concept or a story. It was a lightning strike of fear. One that hit the Greenville County Sheriff's Office just after lunch on January 31st, 1975. And I remember Cash saying, you know, get everybody on the phone and in. Hit the streets, see what we can find out, see what we can hear. Because nobody knew. You know, first thing in anybody's mind in those circumstances, we don't know whether it's a hit or not. Danette sat in that room six months pregnant, working the phones, watching his sheriff and his deputies and staff, all wondering if this was just the beginning. If it is a hit, who could be next? What could happen next? And I can remember just how solemn and scary it was because nobody knew what to think or what, you know, being in the city and, of course, our investigators all headed over to the scene to see, you know, what can we help? What's going on? What have you found? What Green's saying there, the Looper House sat just inside the city limits. So the investigation fell to the city cops, not Cash Williams' sheriff's deputies. The city cops, who according to the resident agent of the FBI at the time, a guy named Tom Donahue, turned him away when he showed up to offer the help 
of the federal government. I can remember the day of the murder. I went over there, and they didn't want let any. They didn't want any help at all. They turned their thumbs down. So that kind of was. Why do you think that was? I think they knew who did it. I think they knew damn well who set it up, or some of them did. They didn't want anybody coming in. You know, look at the truth. But that didn't stop the sheriff's deputies from racing to the Looper garage and apparently stepping all over the crime scene. For the past 18 years, I've been studying pictures from inside the Looper garage on the day of the murders. And turf battles between the city and the county are no secret. And most people alive today have grown up on police procedurals, the ones that show murder scenes getting turned into highly secure and sterile laboratories, not freeways for foot traffic. So I wrongly assumed the men pictured in the crime scene photos were Greenville City police detectives from the department that's job was to protect and process the evidence on the scene and then make sure justice was done. I assumed that until I met Danette Green. She pointed to one of the photos I had and said, well, that's Bill. They never got to the truth of it. There's more to this. There's got to be more to this. Bill was Bill Green. A couple of decades later, he married Danette and made her Danette Green. But in 1975, he wasn't a city police detective. He was a sheriff's deputy. All over that crime scene, his hands-on evidence, as city officers roamed around him. If you look at photos on our website or the trailer for the podcast, you can see Bill Green. He's the one with the big mustache and black-framed glasses facing the camera. In one of them, the man with his back to the camera is apparently sheriff's deputy Clyde Norris. In 1976, a grand jury indicting cops on corruption charges Named Norris as Crooked too. A story security man, Leonard Brown, may someday tell you. In the meantime, here comes Clyde. Tells him about the confidential informer about the same time. You get up this Monday now, we go, we got this confidential informer. Tell us where the shit is, you know. But in 1975, Norris was walking around the Looper murder scene with Bill Green. Just two county deputies hanging out inside a Greenville City crime scene. And in December 1974... Less than two months before Frank Looper died, Looper, Clyde Norris, and Bill Green were part of a small team that busted a man in a drug raid, a man who the FBI would eventually sweep up in an organized crime ring. The same FBI bust that first netted Bub Skelton, that corrupt cop you heard about in the last episode. And Clyde Norris, well, he was Bub Skelton's brother-in-law. I'm not suggesting that Green or Norris didn't have a right to be there that day. It's just worth mentioning, the man who sent them there, Sheriff Cash Williams, was one of the very first people to suggest that Frank Looper might have been a target because he led a band of ragtag undercover narcs that had been busting drug dealers all over the county. Leonard Brown remembers Looper's crew this way. He had this crowd that roam around with him, you know, the damn Sorry pants and long hair and bandanas or whatever they had on, you know, looking like a bunch of hoodlums. No matter what they looked like, they were successful. And as far as attorney Eric Gottlieb was concerned, successful enough for Looper to get killed for it. I think a lot of really powerful people were probably hooked into the drug trade. They said enough. They tried to warn him. They fired a shotgun through his front door. They also fired bullets into his grandfather's house. He didn't heed the warning, so they killed him. Very simple. No mystery there. I think it was an assassination. I don't think it's a coincidence that both Frank and Rufus had a, a single bullet to the head, two inches above the ear. 
I don't think that's a coincidence at all. Contract murder might sound like something from Hollywood, but it happened here. That paid hit just a few weeks after the Looper murders? Confirmed, confessed, and adjudicated? Country Small and former Deputy Frank Walker killing Bugs Hasse, dumping him on Paris Mountain? That all happened. And when contract killings weren't happening, people were saying they were about to. In fact, as you'll hear in later episodes, Sheriff Cash Williams' rivals later publicly accused him of trying to have them killed. According to Eric Gottlieb, he talked to one woman who worried she might be a target too. That woman? Rita, the woman Frank Looper was talking to minutes before someone shot him. She described being terrified when the sheriff came to her home on a condolence call. She was afraid of him and would not see him because she was convinced that people within the department had killed Frank. And for those people who don't count legends as facts or won't take a New York lawyer's word for it, for people who don't believe police ever heard about a hitman possibly being responsible for the Looper murders, we have it on paper, a document found deep in the police file. On February 5th, less than a week after the murders, two officers, J.W. Davis and J.L. Dye, were working the West Greenville beat around 1 a.m. A white man walked up and said he heard a week before the murders, quote, a hitman was in town to rub out a narcotics agent. The informer didn't pay the street talk much mind, said he heard it from a guy named Steve Edwards. But later, informant changed his mind and decided he should tell police. He said he had heard this. A hitman was driving a white over red Cadillac, one that was currently at Adam's junkyard. The informer said a guy named Anthony Oots was spreading the story. Anthony Oots turned out to be a killer too. A few years later, he killed a guy named Vardry Norris. Remember that organized crime bus that got Bub Skelton? The FBI arrested Vardry Norris in that bus too. And what made the informant finally decide to tell the cops about what he had heard? He drove by a very large funeral at Graceland Cemetery. The funeral for Rufus and Frank Looper. It meant a lot to cash for everybody to go to that funeral, including on-duty officers that could be spared, and then the city would help take calls. They made an agreement. And I thought that was awfully nice and awfully decent at that time. Cops came from everywhere. Looper's family remembers that cold, rainy day. And one of the things that stood out for Adele and Julia McCauley were all the police that came to mourn. And I remember that there were so many police I remember that more than I remember the funeral. It all seems like a dream almost. It seems like that they had a lot of police cars behind the hearse and the family car. Danette Green was there because, in a way, she was family too. Well, it's a family. You are a family. It was family. And when something happened to somebody, you didn't have to be extremely close to them. It still hits you. Somebody you saw coming in and out sometimes hits you harder than if it was a family member that you didn't really see. When you saw that, you know, it was part of your family, and it, it hurt. We were all shocked, and it hurt us. The blood relatives were the closest to the grave, and spreading out in bunches as far as they could see, law enforcement officers from counties far and wide. As the distance to the grave got longer, the sound of the looper's mourning got softer. And Danette Green remembers hearing something else. Something that was, at best, a very unfortunate coincidence. And at worst, something unspeakable. It came from just across the road at a place that seems to keep coming up again and again in this story. Behind us was Adam's junkyard. And I can remember back in there, all of a sudden, 
in the beginning of the service, gunfire go off. About two shots, pop, pop. And everybody looked around at each other like, are we going to hit the deck or what? You know, what's going on here? It was a scary feeling. The fear of a hitman in town abated over time. And in that way, time is a gift. A gift like a picture that can prove something wasn't quite right. Or a document that connects two dots that seemed unconnectable. Or a person just waiting for a chance to tell their story. A person who may just have a box full of stuff that could answer more questions than some people want answered. But as those old fears start to dim in the light of history, like a lot of unexpected gifts, there's a hidden price. For some people who lived back then, there's a kind of fear they hide during the day. They believe that long ago, someone gave them the gift of the rest of their lives. And with that gift comes decades of nightmares, tears, fear inside grown men, men who have most of their lives behind them, still too afraid to tell what they know and forever unsure how to cope with the guilt that comes with all those extra years of silence. Danette Green knows some of those people. Actually, after four decades in the sheriff's office, she knows a lot more than most. I think the general feeling, even after it was said it was a robbery, there's a lot of people still, it was not a robbery, it was a hit. They always felt that way, and some of them will always be, and you know, I still do too. In this episode, Murder Etc. began what will be a rather in-depth process of taking you through what we've learned over the course of many years. Today, you heard names and details that you haven't heard before, and you heard about documents and pictures. Just a few of the thousands of pages of information we've collected that, when read carefully, tell a much different story than the one told at Charles Wakefield's murder trial and in the countless court hearings since. So here are the best ways to make sure you keep up. First, subscribe for free on Apple Podcasts or wherever you're listening right now so you don't miss an episode. Second, if you like this show, give us a good rating, or better yet, write a nice review so other people can come listen. And finally, go to our website where we have a section called The File that we update each week with information backing up what you've heard here. To get to it, go to murderetcpodcast.com and look for the section called The File. That's murderetcpodcast.com. And before we go today, I'd like to offer a quick thanks to WYFF-TV, The Greenville Journal, and The Thinking Poker Podcast for their recent coverage of murder, etc. We appreciate you helping us tell the story. Next time on Murder, Etc. If Charles Wakefield Jr. was not in the Looper garage that day, then where was he? Can he explain it? Of all the things he can't explain about his life, he will explain where he says he was that day and some of the other places he wished he'd never gone. You know, you can go through there in the daytime, but you didn't go over there hanging out. Anything might happen to you, you know, because, you know, at, at night, at night, people do things they don't do in the daytime. Charles Wakefield's alibi on the next murder, etc.